Tonight's message is titled, Has God Rejected Israel? from Romans 11, 1 to 10. Romans 11, 1 to 10. Turn there in your copy of God's Word if you haven't. I'm going to read it uh, for us now, at the beginning, before we uh, get into the explanation of the text. And so, Romans 11, 1 to 10. And it says this I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. They are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. There ends our reading. Some of us in this room tonight know the sting of rejection all too well, don't we? Some of us maybe have been at the altar, made promises there, only to have those vows and promises abandoned and someone turn their back on us. us. Others of us know the rejection of hurtful words spoken by a college bound child after years of nurture and care. As they depart, they leave those stinging, rejecting words. Others of us maybe have heard those demands to stay out of my life. After time and money, care, concern, prayers have been prayed, poured herself out for this person to help them get themselves back on their feet, and they reject you. Others of us maybe know the rejection of a job opportunity, a job of the lifetime comes up. You may have even made it to the final round of interviews only to get passed over for someone better looking or younger with more experience. Maybe others of us in business have been serving a client, a customer, for years and years, working hard, doing your best, getting them the best rates, the best service, the best whatever it is. And then suddenly, without explanation, they go find another agent or another firm or another company Maybe that sting of rejection still burns. And in another way, the question that is posed to us tonight, the charge that's brought against God is, has he rejected the Jews, his chosen people? Did you notice that in the text tonight as I read it? This charge of rejection against God, that he has rejected his Jews for greener grass and Gentile nations? 
that's what's out there tonight. This is the issue that Romans 11 is going to tackle and really is the issue that it's going to come back to. If you've been here with us uh, this fall as we've been looking at Romans 9 to 11, you see that this is really uh, uh, the, the issue at the forefront here. And now Paul's coming back to it in chapter 11 after a little bit of a hiatus in chapter 10 and really coming back to deal with this question directly. At the beginning of chapter 9, he, he raised this question, he's, and he asked, has God's word failed? Has he gone back on it? And now he's really taking it a step further in the charge of saying, well, has God actually outright rejected his people? Not that he's failed, not that he's been powerless, but has he actively, to, towards a people whom he once received, has he now pushed them away? Has he now neglected them or cast them aside like a worn pair of clothes or something that has worn out its welcome. And so chapter 11 now is really going to be a weaving together of chapters 9 and 10 of God's pardoning and Israel's rejection and God's choice and, and uh, Israel and the believer's faith. And so it's going to weave these two things together Once now that it's established these two twin towers of divine truth now going to uh, uh, just explain and go deeper, particularly into God's dealings with Israel now in the present day. And so in Romans 9 here, this is, this is important for us to understand as well, but in Romans 9, Paul really looked at God's past dealings, his electing purposes before the foundation of the world, his work in the Jewish people of both the nation and also his, his, uh, his remnant, those that he's uh, chosen spiritually speaking, in the past. And our passage tonight is going to deal with God's dealings with the Jewish people presently and today. And if you come back next week and the week after that, then really it's going to be speaking of God's future dealings with Israel and the things yet to come and what he is going to do in days yet ahead. Maybe it'll be great and maybe it'll all start taking place before we get to next week. And we'll be raptured and all that stuff will happen in the next week. Wouldn't that be great? We wouldn't even have to look at the word. We'd just get to live in light of it. Wouldn't that be great? And so tonight here, we really have, there's going to be three uh, sections. If you're taking notes here tonight, as we, as we walk through it, there's, gonna, there's three statements or three ideas that uh, are, are really the big picture of, of God's present dealings with Israel. And so if you look with me in verse 1 here, here is the uh, charge that he is addressing. We've seen this uh, mode of interaction that Paul is using in his writings throughout Romans many times already. And so he, he addresses this charge. God has not rejected his people, has he? And so knowing what the, what the protests would be to what he's just taught us in Romans 9 and 10, he then, he then anticipates the protest of, well, God must have rejected his people, particularly the Israelites, the Jewish nation. And like as we've seen the case here, as he answers ten times to these big charges in the book of Romans, he uses his strong, emphatic, no, or as NASB translates, may it never be. No, God has not rejected his people. Can God reject what he has chosen? Can God go back on his word? Is God lacking in integrity? Is God untrustworthy or unfaithful? No way, right? If anyone were to bring that charge against God, our reaction should be an emphatic, not a chance, right? 
should be. No way. God has now rejected his people. And so here then, Paul is going to, as he addressed it as this, his first statement, his first category is, God has not rejected Israel. All right? And here's the proof. Paul's the proof, right? He says, no, God hasn't rejected Israel this day, because look at me. I, too, am an Israelite, and I'm saved. And so if God has rejected the Israelite people, Paul's saying, then I wouldn't be here, right? So he's saying, I'm the proof. Even if, even if I'm the only one, I, you, God has not rejected the Israelite people because I am saved. So he gives his credentials here, much like he does in Philippians 2. He says, I'm an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham, and I'm even of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, which is uh, you know, one of the renowned tribes of the 12 tribes here, the same tribe which uh, Saul came from. So he's saying, no, he hasn't. And we know the proof is he hasn't done this. God isn't, hasn't rejected his people, has he? And Paul is really the proof. I want us to just look at a few passages here because it's in the Old Testament to see here why this is such a, 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 a strong response from Paul. Because he's, he's, this charge is coming up in the New Testament, and Paul, remember, is so steeped in the Old Testament, he's like, this cannot happen. Because over and over and over again, we're told that God will not go back on his people. He will not cast them aside. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. I just want to show a few sec, uh, passages of Scripture here from the Old Testament where we, where we see God making this promise. First Samuel's back in the Old Testament, one of the first of the uh, historical books. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. And here when the king is being confirmed by Samuel, he says this in verse 22, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for yourself. And so why will God not abandon his people? Because what's on the line here? His own name, his own reputation. That, that means something. God isn't going to go back on his word because that would put a mark against his name, against his integrity. So God isn't going to abandon his people. He said it then, and, and the, the same is still true. Let's turn over to the Psalms. We'll see this again. Psalm 89. Promise there. shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky 
is faithful. God is going to be faithful to his name, faithful to his people, faithful to the promise that he's made with David. Again, just turn over a few pages to Psalm 94. just want to see, I want you to see here the overwhelming witness of the scriptures. Psalm 94, verse 14. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Turn over a few more pages, Psalm 106, verses 44, 45. In the other context we've seen is faithfulness to his people and to his promises in light of their sin. And now here even in the midst of their distress and their suffering. Psalm 106, 44 and 45 says, Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Is God going to reject his people? Is he going to go back on his word? No. No, and this is the overwhelming witness of the Old Testament. And so no wonder this elicits a, a bold, emphatic, may it never be from Paul here. He knows from God's past history of faithfulness and in his own personal life of being saved. We even have the proof of this now. Are there? Do we know Messianic Jews who've been saved now in this day? Yeah, many of us, even in this room, in our church, know one. Barb's husband, Rick, is a Jewish man who's been saved. There, God has not rejected his people because we have one in our church. Our missionary, Gary Morris, Jewish man. The testimony that we heard two weeks ago. Others. God hasn't rejected his people. There's the proof right there. God has, let's just continue walking through this passage here. Verse 2 says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so here, moving away really from the individual sense that we've seen the word foreknowledge uh, being used in 8 and 9 and stuff. But here, and, and collectively, here he's not has not rejected these people whom he foreloved, whom he chose as, a, as an entire nation. He's not gone back on his promises. And so our next statement, our next category really picks up here. And this idea that he brings back to that God has preserved a remnant. Section 1, in verses 1 and 2, God has not rejected Israel. And this next section is God has preserved a remnant. And we've seen this all along here, haven't we? If you've been coming the, the last several months here, that this is a common theme that, uh, that Paul's been developing here, really within the, the character of God and the electing purposes of God and his salvation uh, purposes and how he works it out, is he always saves a remnant. That there is a, a small, select group of people that he sets aside for, to experience his grace and his mercy. And so he saves a people for that reason. And so he uses it now an example of Elijah here. And it's interesting that he does this because I think Paul is identifying with Elijah's situation here. And so pick it up here in midway through verse 2. He says, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And so he's referring back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll look there in just a second. Um, but he's saying, don't you know this? How he pleads with God against Israel? Against Israel. Elijah the prophet, isn't he a prophet too? 
Israelites? Isn't he a Jewish man? But he pleads with God against Israel. He's saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And so let's go back to, let's turn over to, to 1 Kings chapter 19. Kings is just after Samuel. Another one of the historical books that describes the kings of Israel, the united and divided kingdom. And so when Elijah is king here, or when Elijah is a prophet, I should say, that Ahab is the king and his wife is Jezebel. Are you familiar with Jezebel? One of the bad women of the Bible. She's not one of the ones in the Tuesday morning women's study on 12 extraordinary women of the Bible. She has been left off of that list. She actually, uh, Ahab has just gone and killed a whole bunch of prophets. He's just killed the, you know, the servants of God. And now Jezebel takes up this personal vendetta against uh, Elijah and is going after him. And so in chapter 19, Elijah's really, he's fearing for his life. And so if you're, if you're maybe familiar with this passage, the beginning of, of chapter 19 is Elijah actually, he gets uh, afraid and he runs for his life. Even after he's seen these great miracles, even after he's uh, witnessed God's uh, uh, favor and he's, he's had this great ministry. But he's really tired out and he runs away and he goes and sits under a tree and he requests that he might die. You know, we would say Elijah was depressed at this point in his life, even after great ministry. He's worn out. And so he's he's here and he is he's distressed. He sees that persecution is all about him, that the servants of God are being killed around him. And look at verse 18 of chapter 19. This is in the context here. The Lord is telling uh, Elijah what he's going to do. He's saying, go return, go back uh, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you've arrived, you'll anoint Hazael, king over Aram. And and so he does this, but then he says in verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. And so God is saying, I recognize that all of Israel is uh, going astray here. But I'm go- But there's a remnant. I'm going to leave 7,000 in the midst here of those that have not bowed the knee to this pagan god, to this graven image, this false idol named Baal. And he does just that over in, in uh, chapter 20, then uh, verses 13 to 15, he, he does just that. Behold, the prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today. And so you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, By whom? So he said, Thus says the Lord, By the young men of the rulers of the provinces. And then he said, You shall begin the battle. And he answered, You? And he he answered, You. Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces. There are 232. And after them he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel. And how many was the remnant? 7,000 men. 7,000 men whom he gives to Ahab, who are preserved even for Ahab. And was Ahab a good king? No, he wasn't. He wasn't a good king, but God in his mercy here, he saves even 7,000 people for uh, to escape really judgment. 
even when Ahab and all of Israel deserve judgment, God preserves both Ahab and these 7,000 people. And so the question is, as we move back to, to Romans 11 now, is why does Paul use this illustration of a remnant? It almost seems like an odd uh, illustration here in when we think about God's what God is doing amongst the Israelite people. But Paul, I think here, is identifying with his own position with Elijah. Here, Paul seeing that the, it, it, that the world is persecuting Christians. You know, it hasn't gotten as bad as when he's writing this, but persecution is rising in, a, in the world against Christians. The Jewish people are, are, you know, really by and large rejecting Jesus. The Gentiles are coming to Christ in mass. And so Paul is saying, just like in Elijah's day, when he was the uh, prophet and speaking God's word and, and uh, the appointed messenger uh, to those people at that time, even in a wicked time when they're really in mass turning away from God and bowing down to this, uh, this uh, Baal, this pagan God. So even then God saved a, a remnant, saved a, a small group of people. So, too, God was doing that in that day. And so, too, is God doing that in our day. Maybe not in mass. You know, as we've seen that the majority of the Jewish people are rejecting the Messiah, even though he's been promised in their scriptures, even though he is, is uh, uh, you know, can be clearly seen in the scriptures. But their eyes have been blinded to it. So what does this teach us? Why is this relevant to us? Well, it's like I said, God is preserving a remnant of Jews now and in Paul's days, just as he did in Elijah's day. And so this is this is God's means of working with Israel and has been throughout history. This is nothing new. This is the pattern of God's dealings in, in, at large, too. We know even believers in comparison to the, all the people of the world. Those who believe, even Jew and Gentile, are just a small remnant. And this is true even specifically within the Jewish people, that God has always worked to save a remnant, spiritually speaking, but always preserving them. And how is this also done here? How, is, how does he, you know, pick or preserve this remnant? Well, what does it say in verse 5? In the same way, then, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to their good works. Is that what it says? No, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, right? If you put works into the equation, then grace is just deleted from the whole equation altogether. And so God's choice of a remnant is always based on his grace. Is this anything new to us? No. It's, not, it's, it's been his main theme, but he, he has to keep bringing it back into our heads. Because sometimes I, I, I think it's, it's very specific and very deliberate here of Paul bringing this back up because this has been his main point. It's like, Paul, I think we get the point. You know, I, I, even in my study uh, this past week of, of coming back to this passage, it's like, man, we've, I've, I've preached this, I think, every single week since September, right? The remnant keeps coming back up in God's grace every single week, you know, in some form or fashion. Sometimes it's one of the main points of the passage. Otherwise, it's just implied. 
our, based on our knowledge of it and God working this way. But, but I think it's deliberate here because we too forget this all the time, don't we? We forget this all the time. We just, uh, our, our natural inclinations are always to want to earn our way to, to achieving something. And especially when it comes to salvation, we just get this idea of, well, he deserves it and she doesn't. Or, or God should, of course, save this person. And, well, that person, they're just, they, they don't meet the criteria. We, we're just bent this way. And so Paul's just infusing these, our understanding in these chapters with this idea of uh, God chooses a remnant based on his grace. That none of us deserve it. All of us deserve judgment. All of us deserve the consequence for our sin. All of us deserve, ultimately, to go to hell. God in his grace, God according to his mercy, what we did not earn or deserve, says, I'm going to foreknow you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to, I'm going to choose you because I can. Because I want to. Not because you earned it, not because you, I want you on my team, because of anything great that you bring to the table, because all we bring to the table is sin. And God says, well, I'm going to save this person anyways. I'm going to take this person out of the stream. I'm going to take this person out of, of going the way of depravity and bring them back in. God worked like that in the past, and God is working that way now, even in the Jewish people and the world at large in regards to salvation. But we need to remember this. And we can't get discouraged by this. This is what the truth does. The truth that shakes out and separates the really the sheep from the goats. And so when things get small and you realize, well, we just this maybe is this is the remnant. <laughs> These are the ones who are faithful. These are the ones that, that God has put this interest and this desire in for spiritual things. So we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again and constantly confront our, our, our inclinations towards the fact that we think we deserve to be saved or that we deserve to earn this or that God owes us something in regards to salvation or anything really in life that he blesses us with. So do you see that? Do you see why this is important? You may think that we're just preaching the same things over and over and over again, but I hope that you're that you're beginning to understand this. I hope that you're beginning to to let this infuse your way of thinking and alter maybe how you approach life and your filter for how you process God's workings in people's lives and who He saves and who is not saved, because it's by grace. It's no longer works. It's not by the law. It's by grace. Amen? Amen. Otherwise, none of us would get there. Yeah. So what, is this, what does this also teach us about, why is Paul bringing this up? Well, if God had not preserved his people, then really the entire Jewish nation would be done away with, right? If God hadn't preserved the, you know, the, what did, when God brought the people out of the land of, of Egypt, right? And they, they sin and they, they, come and they do the whole golden calf thing while uh, Moses is on the mountain. And should God have just like wiped them all out and be like, I just rescued you. I just did all these 
plagues. I just did all these miracles. I just preserved you. I just passed over you, you know, and I just had this mass exodus, and you even got away with the loot. And they just gave you all their gold and silver. I know I've always missed that, but just recently, I've, I, I'm in Leviticus now, but I've just been reading, finished Exodus, and, and for some reason, I've always missed that. God tells them to, you know, ask the Egyptians for all their gold and silver and, and treasure, and the Egyptians just give it to them as they're leaving. You know, hey, see you later. And by the way, I'm taking all your jewels with me too. Yeah, I, I just missed that, I guess. But I thought, wow, that's interesting. That's where they bring all this gold and everything in, and so they go into the land. And man, God could have just taken them out then. And so many other times in the passage with Elijah, here the whole nation is just really turning away from God. And as they're moving into captivity, the, the nation is just, by and large, rejecting God. And God would have been very just to just wipe them all out and say, you know what, Jewish people, I'm done with you. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Why? Because he made a covenant with them. He made a promise with them. And his name and reputation, his integrity is on the line. And so some get the punishment that is due to them. And others, he says, you know what? I'm going to save you. I'm going to extend my grace, my mercy towards you. And a remnant of you will be saved. That way my name will be vindicated. And so it doesn't just stop here then. In the remainder of this passage tonight, you see really now our third heading. First, we saw that God has not rejected Israel, and God has preserved a remnant. And now this statement three is another thing that we've looked at here, just something that we need to be reminded of again, but God has hardened the nation, Israel. God has hardened the nation, Israel. And this time, it's really, it's spun in a positive light. We're not going to see really the positive implications of this until next week, why the hardening was necessary and why this is, is actually going to be something positive in the future and in, you know, in the long run here. But God has hardened the nation. He hasn't rejected them, but this hardening has come as a result of them seeking righteousness on their own. Right? So he refers back to this. Look at verse 7 then. So he says, he just asks the question, well, what then? Okay, we know that God hasn't rejected them. We know that God saves the remnant. Well, what then in regards to Israel now? Well, what Israel is presently seeking, namely what we saw back at the end of chapter 9 and all throughout chapter 10, is that they were seeking a righteousness of their own. Right? Israel... But Israel, this is uh, Romans 9, 31, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And so what did they do? They stumbled over the stumbling stone, who is namely Jesus. They stumbled over him in their pursuit of the wrong thing. And so here he's saying, even now Israel is seeking, or going after this righteousness of their own, they have not obtained it. But seen all along, but those who were chosen have obtained it. Those who God elected, those whom he foreknew, they were given faith, and they obtained the righteousness which is by faith. They were the ones who were whose word had come near to them, and their word in the, their mouth, and who they confessed with their mouth Jesus as Lord, and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. So those who were chosen, they obtained that, the faith, the righteousness that comes by faith. And the rest, 
the end of verse 7 say and the rest were hardened the rest were left to go their own way the, le the rest were left to seek after their futile way of attempting to achieve righteousness or right standing with God so they're they're hardened they're you know as we've talked about before they they their hearts are just continually become more hardened as they turn away from God as they try their own thing as they as they go after in pride without humbling themselves before God then the result of this is the hardening of their heart is this anything new no Paul again here he's going to use the you know the three-peat as he's done several times and using examples from the law the writings and the prophets the, you know, the trifold witness of the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament being summed up again in the law, the prophets, and the writings. We saw this back over in chapter 10 and at the end of, of chapter 9. Just a, a tactic of Paul quoting from three different areas in the Old Testament to say this is conclusive evidence from all across the Old Testament that this is the case. So he quotes from Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, and Psalm 69 next verses here. So he says, just that it is written, and this is really a blending of Isaiah 29.10 and Deuteronomy 29.4, but he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Their eyes have been blinded, their ears have been stopped up, and it's still going on to this day. So what is, what, what's the saying of, of Jesus? What do we see in the Gospels? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Knowing that God gives us ears to hear the gospel, to hear the word of Christ, and to respond. Gives us ears of faith, eyes to see what is the truth of the scriptures. But in our hardness of heart, we can't, we can't see those things. Our ears were blinded, were made deaf, and this is the case for the Jewish people. Even today. Goes on, David says, this is Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And so this is this is an interesting quote here. You know, really Psalm 69 is a, is a great psalm as well. It's a precatory prayer, really praying down uh, curses upon the Israelites' enemies, upon David's enemies here at this time. And now Paul's using it really in, in, as their own uh for their own condemnation. But he's saying here, let, let their table, really what they set before them, that's going to become a snare and a trap. So what, what was the snare and the trap to the, to the Jewish people? What was, or what was set at their table was the law, right? The word of God. This blessing that was meant to, you know, to, for them to feast upon. But it had been twisted and misunderstood. They couldn't see it. They didn't have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And so instead of it being to their blessing, instead of it serving them well and feeding them, they stumbled over the table. You know, think about the picture here. You know, how many of you, you know, maybe you have to you come out of your bedroom and you, you know, you want to go for a, uh, to the, uh, you know, to the bathroom in the middle of the night. You have to cut through your dining room. But the, you know, your eyes are all, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're all kind of in a fog and you're stumbling through the dark. What does your table become as you walk through the dining room? It becomes a stumbling block, right? It becomes a snare and a trap. As opposed to when you can see and the lights are on and it's set with food before you, it becomes where you feast at. 
so this is the picture. What is meant to be good, what is meant to serve us well, as to the those Jewish people who can't hear and can't see, who've been blinded to the truth, it's become their stumbling block. And so their eyes are darkened, they can't see, and they're going to bend their backs forever. It's going to be a burden to them forever. There's be no relenting from it. it it's not a it doesn't come it's not unjust punishment but they have been hardened and it's it maybe it's hard to see here because uh, we're not going to go farther uh, tonight in uh, in the text but it is really actually spun in a positive way because remember what is this the proof of this is the proof that God has not rejected his people and so the, the proofs, the three proofs that Paul lays out is God hasn't rejected his people because I'm standing here and I'm saved. We know that salvation is always by a remnant and that God has hardened some people. So they say, well, how is that? Uh, how is that a good thing, right? Don't we want everybody to be saved? Don't we want it all, you know, everybody that we know? Well, I'm just going to let that question linger for you and not answer it unless you want to continue reading on in your own study this week. And, uh, and see the reasons for this. And so now that we've seen this, I really just want to bring us, well, why does this matter to us? Why do, why do, you know, that's a question that we should ask all the time, especially in doctrinal passages like this, or passages that don't specifically give us commands to obey. You know, just as you've looked through this passage tonight, has there been specific commands, do this or don't do this? Hasn't been in this passage, right? You know, just as good Bible soon, you know, it hasn't necessarily set out, you know, things, okay, go and live this way. And that's been the, really the case all, you know, our last ten chapters, and we got one more chapter of it before we get into all the commands in uh, chapter 12 and, and beyond. And so we have to ask the question, well, what does this mean? What, what bearing does this have upon my life? Well, one to know particularly is that God has not given up on the Jewish people. He's still working in them, even today, even though it seems that they have turned their backs upon God and that they're going their own way. But God is still, even today, at work, saving a remnant, a small group. And so we, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for the Jew today, you know, and the Gentile. We'll see his future work amongst them uh, next week. But God is still working amongst the Jewish people today. And so he hasn't rejected them, and neither should we why we support a Jewish missionary and why we should, uh, as we come across a Jewish people in our life, as God uh, providentially puts them into our life, we should uh, still continue to preach the gospel and show them the Messiah from the scriptures. But in our life here, is there some particular applications for us? Well, I think there are. One, I would say, is that God is always faithful to his people. Particularly, this passage teaches us, you know, his chosen people, but even us as Gentiles are a part of his people. We're part of the family of God, right? We are sons and daughters of God. He is always faithful to his people. And my question is, will you believe that when earthly rejection happens? You know, in all the situations that I brought up at the beginning of this message, maybe one of those uh, struck a chord with you. You know, is will you believe in God's faithfulness 
when you're rejected by someone, or when your expectations aren't met, or when you don't get your own way, what you think should happen in a certain situation. We know that rejection in this life is real. But God can be trusted. God will not reject his people. And so I hope that you remember that, and I hope that you believe that. I hope that is a fundamental truth that you can go back to, that it is a solid foundation in your life in every situation. That even when you're experiencing earthly rejection, even when you are experiencing earthly disappointment from some other fallen human being or some other situation that didn't go your way, I would hope that you would go back to and fall back on the very fundamental truth that God has not rejected you. And if you have trouble remembering that, write it in your Bible. Put it somewhere that you can remember it all the time, that you can go back to frequently. I have a little a little picture and thing on my phone that, that just ultimately just quotes Romans 11.1 1 that says, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. It's just on a picture. If you want me to text it to you or email it to you, I'll do that. You can put it on the lock screen on your phone or on the, you know, your screensaver on your computer. Just so it constantly reminds you that God has not rejected his people. Don't let that escape your consciousness. Secondly, what is it, why does this matter to us as well? There will be a faithful remnant in our wicked day too. We've seen this in the, the times of Elijah. Paul is telling us that it happened in his life. And really we've seen through the history of the ages that God has always brought forth a faithful remnant in wicked days. There's always been wicked days. The days have always been evil. And God has always preserved a remnant. And so the question for you is, will you be one of those faithful people? One of those who is unwilling to bow the knee to the present day Baals? even after all the others are killed? And this is a very real question. I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime, quite possibly. Persecution may be coming. It may be on the horizon. And after they go after all the pastors and the missionaries and the, those that are in maybe vocational ministry and they kill us all so they start, try to stop the message, will you be one of the faithful ones who won't bow the knee to the cultural bales? others are killed. Have you resolved that in your heart, that I will not bow the knee to anyone else other than King Jesus. And lastly, I would just caution us to be careful how you set your table. As we've seen, the table here that can serve us well can also become a stumbling block. And so what was good for them, the word, the law, that uh, had been given to them that had ultimately become a snare, had been twisted. It had been uh, taken out of context. It had been gone after without self-control and outside of grace. So be careful what, you, what burdens you put upon yourself. Be careful what you put on your plate. That it doesn't become a snare and a stumbling block leading you away from the Lord. Be warned in this. Jewish people had the word for years and became a snare, a trap, and a stumbling block, a retribution to them. 
things that God has given you in your life become the same. So here we have it. God has not rejected his people. So we've seen proven in Paul's personal testimony and ministry. So we've seen in the preservation of a remnant of a faithful few and the positive results of God's pardon. Father in heaven, we do. We can look at a passage like this and ultimately we can rejoice. But this is good news that you are still at work even in the Jewish people, even in our day when it may seem futile, ministry there may seem hard, that you're still at work, even in a remnant, even in a few. And so we would just ask uh, particularly for our missionary Gary and for others of us that you might bring them across our path, that we might... Uh, bring those who are of your remnant across our path that we might uh, share the gospel with them and see them saved. God, we just, we're, we're thankful that you do work even in hardened people. That you save us by your grace. Let us not ever uh, become dissatisfied with grace. But let us always look to it and live in